today's show, I speak to author and activist Alex Gladstein. Alex is the Chief Strategy Officer at the Human Rights Foundation and Oslo Freedom Forum. We discuss the World Bank and IMF and how they exploit the global south. This is your host, Omer, and welcome to the Ozone Podcast. Alex Gladstein, welcome to the Ozone Podcast. Thanks for having me. Uh, appreciate you coming. Can we have you tell a little bit about your background and how you have a little bit of a progressive worldview? The word progressive has a lot of different ways to interpret. I think that progressive people are more interested to help the vulnerable and the weak. And I think that kind of just drives it forward, right? So they tend to have some policy interests, which might intersect with maybe like libertarians, which would be like, for example, civil rights for minorities. They also have some policy things which tend to maybe overlap with socialists or Marxists, which I would disagree with, but I, I sort of empathize with, with what they're getting at. I think it's the wrong way to do it. But, you know, they want to do redistributionism and, you know, wealth inequality is a problem. So that's kind of how I interpret it. Uh, I mainly feel very strong about the social stuff which is why I tend to identify um, as a progressive. I, I think that civil liberties are absolutely key. But yeah, I mean, obviously, I don't fit cleanly in the box. I don't necessarily think that state-led initiatives are the most efficient way of doing things at all, which is why I'm so interested in Bitcoin, because it, uh, it has a way of incentivizing certain behaviors that are, I think, good for humans without any sort of subsidy or aid. It can kind of um, help educate people certain ways to live and, and to interact, which, which I think are pretty healthy by its own merit. And it doesn't require any sort of uh, aggressive sort of nanny state stuff. So you wear a few different hats um, at the Human Rights Foundation, also Freedom Forum. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about what you do? Sure. Well, I, I help run the Human Rights Foundation, where I'm the chief strategy officer. We do civil liberties work around the world for people who live under authoritarian regimes. And um, one of our big projects is the Oslo Freedom Forum, which is a gathering point for dissidents who are fighting back peacefully against tyranny around the world. What made you dedicate your life to helping people in other countries? Do you have any kind of inspiration that kind of led you to this? I grew up at a time where 9-11 happened when I was uh, in high school, saw the invasion of Iraq, had a lot of questions, ended up pursuing um, studies, looking into international relations, geopolitics. I ended up uh, being able to get an internship uh, in the British Parliament for someone working on foreign affairs, started to think about that as a career, like working in, in that field of international interactions. Got a job with the Human Rights Foundation uh, in 2007, part-time, and then ended up getting a full-time gig the following year. And I've just been doing civil liberties work ever since. So most of what I've learned has been through the wisdom of activists and dissidents and NGOs from around the world. I wanted to talk to you about this very fascinating book that you wrote, Hidden Repression, How the IMF and World Bank Sell Exploitation as Development. Most people probably don't know what the IMF and the World Bank are, what they really do. 
So what are those two entities and uh, what is their function? Well, they were set up as part of Bretton Woods in the wake or the, the final few years of World War II when it was clear that the Allies were going to win as the uh, pillars of the new financial system, along with a handful of other kind of institutions. The IMF was supposed to be the lender of last resort for the world economy. So if a allied or friendly country was having an import-export crisis, they could borrow money from other countries so that they could keep buying and selling stuff. The whole point was to avoid what happened in the 1930s, where the international trade system broke down. Um, and the World Bank was meant to be a development bank that would lend money where the private capital was was not flowing to. Uh, and that that was mainly to, to address uh, war-torn Europe and Japan. And that's kind of what why they were created and what they did for their first 10, 15 years. At some point, the Western powers in Japan recovered, started having massive economic growth, didn't really need poverty assistance in that same way, didn't really need bailouts in the same way. So instead of folding, which is what a lot of what, what a lot of people thought they would actually do, is just sort of shut down. Um, they they pivoted to focus on what were then called third world countries, or maybe global south, global majority, whatever you want to whatever you want to call the the place where most of the world's people and resources are. That took on a neo colonial dynamic, uh, is my argument. My whole thesis is that, of course, there's a lot of like waste and corruption and ineptitude with regard to IMF and World Bank loans. This is well documented. But I don't think they were created too good and then they just like didn't do a good job. I think that's actually a misreading. I think they were created to assert dominance and to exploit resources and labor. And they did a great job of doing that uh, structurally, if you just look at the big picture. And they were a way of replacing old school military colonialism with debt colonialism. And they've been very effective at this. Very, very effective. Once you start to see through that lens, I think it helps understand kind of maybe what their purpose has been and what they do. There's a quote from you in the book. Um, basically, you're paraphrasing is that the global north is essentially looting the global south. And you said uh, enrich creditor nations at the expense of poor ones. If one poor country takes a loan, how are they expected to pay back these loans? Because it seems almost impossible. You know, there's spirals of debt. So what's the whole setup if they're not ever able to pay back those loans? The system is built in a way where the capital flows from Western banks who have these loans as assets on their balance sheets, ultimately. So they don't want to write down their balance sheets and shrink their operations. They want to keep growing, right? That's their incentive. So when a country is facing an issue of not being able to pay back, what ends up typically happening, instead of just saying, sorry, you know, we're, we're not going to pay you back, we don't have any more money, uh, the system says, oh, here's some more, right? And, and this is how you get a situation where maybe in the early 1970s, a country like Bangladesh would have $100 million in external debt. Now it has $100 billion in external debt. It's not necessarily that Bangladesh got a lot worse at managing money or any of these things. It's that the West kept giving it loans at high interest rates and the loans beget more loans, beget more loans, beget more loans. And it's kind of like a drug dealer, like the corrupt autocrat usually in charge of these countries is happy to take the quick money. They don't have to pay back principal plus interest. You know, people later will. And the West keeps growing their balance sheets and getting certain tons of money on interest which is all paid back in dollars, by the way, not local fiat currency. 
in a sort of byproduct or externality or a package of this, these countries have to do stuff to earn dollars, right? So they have to kind of like come into the system, support the dollar economy. They have to sell things to the United States and Europe on favorable terms to earn dollars. They have to get dollars somehow to get oil or fertilizer or weapons or infrastructure, whatever they need. I mean, these big international companies that build stuff don't accept like small fiat currencies. And it's not possible for these countries to print the currency to buy dollars because then they go into a massive currency crisis. So they basically have to structure their economy in a way to to earn dollars. And that creates subservience and dependence. And that's sort of what's been happening here. You know, whether it was intentional or not is a debate, clearly. Um, Like, did this just sort of happen as a path dependent thing? Or was it like, did they sit there in 1960 and say, ha ha, we're going to do this? I mean, (laughs) not clear. (laughs) Probably a mix, right? I think Robert McNamara in the 70s knew exactly what he was doing when he was increasing the size of lending at the World Bank. You know, no one really knows for sure, you know, exactly what, what went on over the decades at those high level conversations, but we can see the actions, right? And the people who suffered under these policies don't. It doesn't matter to them whether it was intentional or not. Like it happened, right? So for all intents and purposes, it was it was intentional. It happened. Um, there's a reason it happened. Maybe it was structural. Maybe it was political. No one really knows, and it doesn't really matter in the end. This is all history at this point. These policies continue, which is why it remains relevant. But I mean, the the, the damage has been done, right? It's not like you can build a time machine and go back and save people from the third world debt crisis. From the West perspective, yeah, they wanted to keep the loans going. They got this super nice benefit that they could kind of shape these countries and their policies as they wanted to borrow more. It's not just that the countries would have to figure out ways to earn dollars and then that would benefit the system. It's also that there were like actual conditions, specific conditions attached to the loans called structural adjustment policies, SAPs, or essentially this is austerity. It's what (laughs) it should be called austerity, but they don't like using that word. But basically it means like streamlining the local economy so that it's kind of like looking at a business. So it's like, where can we cut expenditures, right? To make it as profitable as possible. So you're looking at like, okay, I want gold or bauxite out of Guinea or something like that, right? Okay, so how do we cut expenditures? Well, we want to get the gold out as cheaply as possible. So we want them to pay for a rail link and a port. You know, we want to have labor as cheap as possible. And we don't want any of it to flow back to the local economy. We want all the profit. That's kind of like the starting point of, of where these companies are coming from, where the system's coming from, right? So the loans are made in a way where usually the, the company that's hired to build all this infrastructure out to extract stuff is, is is Western. So the money like immediately goes back into the Western economy, essentially, when the loan is dispersed to come back. Then the poor countries saddled with principal plus interest that they have to pay back over decades, and it puts them in this like debt debt slavery, basically. Uh, and then the the conditionality, the structural adjustment policies are, are meant to basically reduce the cost for the buyer of the stuff. So that would mean devaluation of the local currency that these people are paid in. So we can get more for less. That's why you see all these currency devaluations for the most part. It's interesting you mentioned Bangladesh because I think you started out your book with an example of Bangladesh and how the IMF and the World Bank kind of push countries to go against their own interests to export to the West as opposed to uh, producing things for their own consumption. Uh, can you tell me a little bit more about the Bangladesh story? Well, I mean, it's it's a typical story. Traditionally, people would use the land around them more or less in a way that was in some sort of harmony with, with the environment around them. I mean, obviously, it's not perfect. 
But in general, people were clever and smart over history and figured out ways to take advantage of what was around them to produce what they needed. But that doesn't jive well with globalization or modernity, right? So you had all these farmers who for generations had grown certain plants or had raised certain kinds of cattle, animals. And then there were incentives brought in to either force them or lure them into converting their farms near the ocean in Bangladesh to uh, shrimp farms. So they would like plug up and build dams around their property and fill it with salt water. And they go to the ocean and they fish for prawns, shrimp, things like that. And, and they put them in these vats now that are their fields have turned into saltwater vats and they grow shrimp and they sell them. It's just, it has like hugely damaging effects on society and the environment. Like it uh, puts holes in the natural protections. They cut down a lot of trees to do this. There's like big mangrove forests down there, Sundarbans that uh, I think it's the biggest mangrove forest in the world, or it used to be at least. And it didn't, it sort of naturally protects against tsunami type activity, which, which you see there because there's huge cyclones. The most deadly storm in the world was a cyclone in Bangladesh in the 70s. It killed like a million people. And um, as a response, like initially the government built up a lot of these fortifications to support the mangroves, etc. But through these like lending policies and, and aquaculture, raising the shrimp, the, the fortifications were eroded. There were holes in them all for this desire to sell shrimp to the West to get dollars, right? That's the idea. And it just creates just salt is terrible for growing stuff like ruined a lot of the, the climate in the area in terms of agricultural potential and created a lot of dependence right so i think there's two ways of being poor right there's being like there's there's being poor and independent and there's being poor and dependent and uh we could debate over like you know how many hours today does someone in that part of bangladesh have to work to get a certain to get a thousand grams of protein we are led to believe that over the last century, humanity has progressed on this in enormous leaps and bounds. And that that is true in rich countries, for sure. But in a lot of poorer nations, that's just not true. In fact, in some cases, there will there'll be decades at a time where the number of hours that an average person has to work to get a certain amount of protein or, or milk or oil or whatever doubles sometimes. So so they're getting they're becoming impoverished, right? That's what that means, right? Mm -hmm. um, typically, you'd think that as we move forward as humanity, people get richer, but some get impoverished, right, as a result of this. So it's not exactly clear, you know, to what extent this has had on the lives of people in that region. It's very difficult to argue it's been positive, I think. It's been very positive for the government and for the shrimp lords and for the West. And it's, it's marginal, but everything's marginal in economics, right? It's not like shrimp from Bangladesh is going to be a difference maker in England or America. But margins are important and we get, you know, cheap import. We get paid in dollars, we get paid in hard currency, or Britain gets paid in pounds or, or you know, they'll, they'll accept probably pounds or dollars or euros, but probably nothing else, certainly not the Bangladeshi currency. So they will accept those currencies for their goods, for their planes, machines, and fertilizers. And they'll pay in dollars for what they have, right? They don't have Bangladeshi currency. So they'll, they'll pay in their own currency for the um, for the shrimp. So, so it's been good for the government. Uh, I think shrimp's the second biggest export of the country now. Terrible for the environment, terrible for local communities. And it's not exactly clear that there's been economic growth uh, real in real terms. I mean, in so many countries around the world, you, you have real wage devaluation, certainly during the 80s and 90s, but even in the last 15 years. You know, one of the realizations is that as we progress forward in time, it's not equally distributed. And there, there's 
amazing progress in certain areas and certain societies where people get super rich. I'm a benefit of that. I live in the United States, in California, in a nice part of the world, right? There are other parts of the world where that there's there, there's a downside to that. Um, I don't think it has to be like this. I believe in abundance. I think degrowth is evil, basically. But the incentives are broken in today's system. So I think Bitcoin really changes that because all of a sudden, countries like Bangladesh, they're they not stuck in this dollar trap anymore. If the, if the reserve currency of the world is open, neutral, global, and equal to everybody in terms of access, like no one can just like print it, then things are different. Okay, then like Bangladesh can proportionally harvest its energy resources and convert it to a global reserve currency for stuff. And, and all of these countries have massive energy resources, massive. It's true that the United States is really big and energy rich and is going to be dominant. No matter what world we live in, the U.S. will be a top power if it retains its current form. There's no question. We have enormous food sovereignty, energy sovereignty, a decently growing population. I mean, the other world powers are not. Maybe you, know, maybe you could argue India, but China and Europe are just not. They don't share the same benefits as that. They don't really have energy and food sovereignty in the same way we do. So I think we're dominant no matter what. But right now, it's like that, that dominance is so outsized because we can just print to buy whatever we want. And everybody in the world needs dollars to power the system. So if that slowly gets phased out, and now we're all of a sudden we're in a world where like Bangladesh doesn't have to export shrimp to get currency to buy an airplane. You know, if they can innovate and harvest tidal power or hydropower or whatever and convert the earnings in Bitcoin, and then they can use that to buy whatever they want, then they don't have to change their productive economy to suit the needs of some foreign country far away, right? I think that's pretty huge. And also then the dollar becomes not as relevant for paying back debt. There's a lot of interesting things that could happen. I'm very optimistic about where, where this could go. Why would these countries act against their own interests? And I think one of the things you mentioned is the IMF and World Bank propped up a lot of tyrants and dictators kind of at the expense of like freedom of the people. And you cited a lot of examples of like Ceausescu, Mobuto, Marcos. Is that still something that's ongoing or kind of what's the process of like, were they just kind of greasing their palms and kind of like giving these dictators a lot of benefits in order to get the loans through and get the whole system structured to the way they wanted? Or was it is a little bit more complicated than that? Well, again, I, I've been saying, I think everything's nuanced here. Some of it was organic dependency. Other of it was, was political, meaning some of it was market, market, market forces. Some of it was political. We can have a big debate on that. I, I think that the system clearly, in some cases, was market-driven. I mean, the euro dollar is a good example of that. Like, the dollar was so valuable that even our enemies, the communist countries, wanted the dollar, and they set up ways to get dollars, <laughs> right? So that is not some, like, conspiracy from the U.S. That's, like, what they wanted, right, even when they were fighting us. Uh, at the same time, there was the petrodollar, which is just a great example of the other side of things, where it's like, okay, dollar had a crisis in the early 70s, even though it was pretty dominant. It had a crisis. I mean, it lost a lot of value against other big currencies in a couple of years after we went off the gold standard. And there, there was a crisis of confidence. There's no question. If you go back and look at the media, then this was on the newspapers all the time. And we did a deal. Like we did a deal with the energy producers of the world that we would protect them with our military and they would sell our energy in dollars. So that, that was a political outcome. So there were market outcomes. There were political outcomes for dollar dominance. There were market outcomes and political outcomes for what the IMF and World Bank do. 
the point is that the incentives are such that these this thing's just gonna keep this train. There's no there's no stopping this train like with legacy incentives. Like this thing's just gonna keep growing. Like the only answer for Bangladesh today is to borrow more. There are a hundred billion dollars in debt. That's a debt trap, right? That's the whole point. Potentially forever uh, <laughs> until something different happens, and that that's what Bitcoin is. It's like a paradigm shift. Like it, it's it's a way out of the debt trap. I think. So you use the term odious debt. What is that exactly? Yeah, it was sort of a concept that was created by Americans about 100 years ago during the Cuban War, the war in Cuba with the Spanish. And uh, after they lost, our courts in the United States basically said that the Cuban people shouldn't have to pay back the war, the debt from the Spanish Empire, you know, the Spanish colonialists. Okay. Makes sense to me. I think that's moral. So there's precedent for that, but that's never followed by the IMF or World Bank. Whenever there's a dictator and they get toppled, the, the, the debt is not written off. The people who, who toppled the dictator and did all the hard work to get rid of the dictator, which was which in most cases was was heavily supported by the IMF, uh, they are now on the hook for paying back the debt that the dictator borrowed. This concept of odious debt is, is a, I think, a pretty obvious moral thing, and it's just not followed by the West. Like, we just don't care. Iraq is like the one exception where I think in some cases, some like after we went in and got rid of Saddam, like we forgave some of that debt, but that was a, a, an exception. Your book cites so many examples of the exploitation of the IMF, the World Bank. It could probably be an encyclopedia if someone really wanted to write a full chapter or a book on like literally every loan. It's kind of like modern day colonialism. One of the points you mentioned at the end is that if you could attribute the amount of debts created by these institutions, it's, it's like equivalent of the number of people Stalin and Mao killed, which I thought was, you know, something I don't think people think about that or even know about that. Yeah, well, it's hidden repression. That's the title of the book. I mean, it's not talked about, it's not covered, but I, I think that that's important. And there's no reason to be ashamed of the good parts of Western civilization, which I think are absolutely critical. Too often, the critics of the IMF fall into a trap where they end up supporting horrible dictators. I believe in human freedom and, and liberation and, and liberty and in personal freedom. And I think the way to get that is to have decentralized power structure in a society. I think liberal democracy is probably the best thing we have for that. I, I think it's, it's awful that people end up supporting um, rogue regimes in China, Russia. The answer should be to reform what we do, make us better, not to go to the other side. I think that that's what makes my perspective a little unique here, because most people criticizing the IMF World Bank, or um, a lot of them end up supporting dictators, which is unfortunate. In the book, you mentioned how China is kind of mimicking the policies of the IMF in much of the global South, doing it a different way. Um, do you foresee that to be even worse than what's things that the West has done or kind of on a similar pathway? Well, I, yeah, I try to explain in the book that China's trying to replicate, the CCP's trying to replicate what the IMF did. There's not even any window dressing for human rights. Like it's completely 100% transparently, brazenly exploitative. <laughs> um, there are situations where, where U.S. foreign policy is not exploitative. That, that is not really the case with China. But they don't have the same power as us. They don't mint the reserve currency. So they're running into problems and they've actually stopped issuing a lot of that debt, right? So we'll see where that goes. I think that they're focused internally now. Their dreams of conquering the world, doing the same thing we did are, I think, over for now, or at least on pause. So you talk about solutions. I think number one thing you said, it was possibly you know transitioning to Bitcoin. What do you think about the IMF and the World Bank? Do you think there's a place for these institutions or there's something that should be really abolished? I mean, look, clearly in their current form, they're they're corrupt and exploitative and malicious. And they should be either destroyed or reformed. I mean, I think that there is a place for a lender of last resort if a country has a famine. 
and other countries want to help out. I, I think that that's completely reasonable. I think there's a place for development bank that, that can lend money to projects that don't necessarily have private financing. I, I just don't think they should be a pillar of the global economy. I mean, these things can exist and reasonable countries can agree and make them and support them, but they become co- totally outsized monsters, basically. So they need to be destroyed and defeated or they need to be drastically reformed. That's not going to happen politically. Like the only thing that they could possibly do to change the system to stop this train is for the paradigm shift to occur. And that's what Bitcoin might end up doing. So if Bitcoin starts to grow and become a bigger part of the global economy, these systems necessarily shrink, change, et cetera. That gives me great hope. You've written many articles, excellent articles about Bitcoin. Uh, one article you wrote a few years ago was just kind of relevant today, considering the war and genocide in Gaza. You talked about how Palestinians could achieve freedom through Bitcoin. Um, and you're kind of ahead of the curve on that topic. You wrote that a few years ago. Can you just, I mean, it can be specific to Palestine or in general to any repressed or third world country. Like how can Bitcoin help like a typical common man get more freedom? This is a long-term revolution and we don't know how it's going to shake out. We don't know if if Bitcoin's going to do this. It could, it could. But we do know is that Bitcoin helps at the micro level. Today, it makes possible what was not possible in the 80s. People can escape these crushing, collapsing economies they can escape hyperinflation and that that makes bitcoin worth it so we don't like it could have vastly civilizational changes but it doesn't matter if it never does what it does today is amazing and it's a great tool for individuals whether it has broader scale social and civilizational shifts on how we interact with each other is unclear and unseen Uh, this is a prediction i'm making based on a whole bunch of arguments i've tried to make but i mean this is speculation. What what we know today for sure is that Bitcoin is an escape for individuals, which is awesome. So I think that's where we can hang our hat on that, at least. You just dropped a really nice article yesterday, actually, about how Bitcoin is saving Africa and providing financial freedom through energy. I know it's kind of a long article, but can you give kind of like a high level preview of that? Yeah, it's basically about two things. It's about A, how Bitcoin is helping save wasted energy in Africa through Bitcoin mining. Bitcoin mining is a really unique energy buyer, and it can go in and and buy up wasted energy anywhere in the world with a Starlink and convert waste into progress and capital. And that's going to totally transform Africa. And it's going to transform the world. I mean, there's energy waste everywhere. Everywhere there's energy waste, there could be capital, is, is what Bitcoin mining shows us. It also shows how people are adopting Bitcoin. And it talks about how people have invented ways for individuals with mobile phones with no internet to use Bitcoin without the internet. It's amazing how people are trying to get women involved in Bitcoin, which is very important. 700 million women in Africa and and how people are trying to make sure that what happened in our conversation with the IMF World Bank does not happen with the Bitcoin economy. They're trying to figure out how Africans can build these systems so they can be sovereign. This is so, so important. those, Those are some of the themes I explore in the essay. Yeah, I hope people can check it out. It's called Stranded and it's on Bitcoin Magazine. But um, anyway, thanks for having me on today. I appreciate the conversation. Yeah, well, thank you. And um, can you tell where people can find you or online or where, you know, where you want to send people? Uh, you can find me on, on Noster. You can also find me on Twitter at Gladstein. And you can look at some of my essays at Bitcoin Magazine. You can check out my books, Hidden Repression, and Check Your Financial Privilege and the Little Bitcoin Book. So those are all available on Amazon or, or wherever. And uh, thanks again for having me. All right. Appreciate it very much. Thank you, Alex. Take care. It was a pleasure to speak to Alex Gladstein. He's a wealth of information. A few terms that I wanted to talk about 
The first is structural adjustment loans. I know we touched upon this, but basically it's when the IMF and the World Bank direct an economy uh, to be in the favor of the lender. For example, we talked about Bangladesh, where instead of producing goods for the consumption of their own country, they start producing goods to be exported. Example of this was the shrimp farming, which ends up destroying the environment. Uh, another thing which Alex alluded to was the term double loan. A double loan is basically when the lender gets money back into their own systems. So for example, let's say the IMF gives a loan to a country in the global south. Uh, that loan ends up back in the country of the lenders, such as, for example, France or the USA. Uh, another example of this is when those countries are directed to contract with the lenders. So it seems like a country is getting some kind of financial aid, but the money is being funneled back into the economy of the lender. And this only ends up benefiting uh, the wealthy countries of the global north. Another term we discussed was odious debt. Odious debt is basically sovereign debt incurred without the consent of the people and not benefiting the people. For example, a dictator gets money, the dictator's thrown out, but the people still owe that money. So I think uh, there was an exception in Iraq that Alex talked about, but this is generally that debt is not forgiven and it just hurts these countries when they have these despotic leaders and they end up having a long-term negative trajectory with uh, increasing debt. Another interesting thing is that some of the leaders of the World Bank have been involved in some of the worst wars of this past century. Robert McNamara was the president of the World Bank. Before that, he was the architect of the Vietnam War, which led to over 1.3 million deaths. And you can understand with that kind of mentality, um, what would happen when that person comes in the World Bank. We have no idea how many people died as a result of his tenure at the World Bank in terms of exploitation of other countries. More recently, Paul Wolfowitz, who was in the Bush administration and an architect of the Iraq War, which led to 1 million deaths, also was the World Bank uh, president. And he also had some corruption scandals while he was leader. Uh, this kind of illustrates the evils of the World Bank and IMF. Uh, Alex talked about his latest article uh, in Bitcoin magazine called Stranded. He talks about the country of Malawi, who had a 44% devaluation of their currency overnight. Imagine 44% of your wealth just being evaporated. And again, that was due to IMF actions. I don't think many of us consider uh, what's going on in Africa and other countries, but losing 44% of your wealth that you worked for most of your life is like, it's unheard of. And if the evaporation of 44% of your wealth is uh, pretty sickening and disheartening. So Alex has written many articles and I would recommend to read them. A topic which we didn't touch upon much was uncovering the hidden costs of the petrodollar. I encourage you guys to Google that and look that up. It's a fascinating read and a very interesting topic. Uh, that's all for today's show. Thank you for listening. Please remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and on YouTube. I appreciate if you leave any reviews or ratings as that helps others find the show. Thank you. And until next time, I'm out. Thank you.